On this episode of the Editor's Cut podcast, we are continuing to look at the fallout of COVID-19 and how the beauty and personal care industry has gotten on in the past year with analysis on financials, M&As and product development. We also discuss the challenges that lay ahead of the beauty industry moving into the new year. So it's been a while since we last did our Editor's Cup podcast and I think what's happened since is quite a few of the full year 2020 financials have come out and also there's been plenty going on uh, in terms of mergers and acquisitions and innovation and new product launches which has all been rather exciting considering what what could be arguably defined as a difficult year for industry. Um, One thing I certainly picked up on on the financials is that despite uh, many, many of the bigger beauty players showing strong sales in the last quarter in the Q4, everybody had sales going up except Unilever. Um, Everybody, for the most part, um, overall reported a net income dip for the full year. And, you know, that was pretty much to be expected in line with a lot of the closures uh, associated with the COVID-19 pandemic and whatnot. But one thing that I found interesting in looking at all those financials is that there are obviously some clear categories that have fared better, um, notably oral care and soap. So we've seen Colgate, P&G and Johnson & Johnson do particularly well, thanks to their strong um, presence in the oral care and soap categories. Makeup, for the most part, seems to still be fairly volatile. Um, and skincare relatively flat if you look at the financials from the bigger guys. But what's happening in skincare, it looks like, is that, you know, interest and sales certainly in the actives and the derma beauty space are really, really starting to grow. And we saw a pretty significant move, actually, from Puig in Spain. They carved out a dedicated derma division in January. So really, you know, a firm nod to the potential of that space. Um, I don't know, what what does it look like over in Asia, Amanda, from a financial standpoint? Mm, Yes, I'm seeing similar things as well. Huge dips from the majors, Shiseido, Kao, Amore Pacific, you know, due to store closures, you know, sales in America's and email taking a huge beating. And of course, makeup is a big factor as well. You know, Kao saw that their cosmetics business um, was impacted greatly because of the ratio of makeup they have, which is approximately 10% higher than the market. Um, interestingly, LG H&H managed to report record high annual results and at first I thought it was because the company is very diversified with food and drinks but for them beauty didn't decrease that much. I think operating profit dipped only 8.3%. Their luxury cosmetics business continued to grow from the last quarter and even outperformed the market. Some numbers I highlighted were um, History of Wolf, their flagship brand which grew 1% and uh, another brand, Ohue, the first range which grew Uh, 46%, which I think is quite impressive. I think most, if not all, the firms saw a lot of good news in China. There's still a lot of growth there, and I'm sure they're all eyeing the potential in that country. Um, Japanese firm Polar Orbis actually just set up an office in Hong Kong to tap into the travel retail opportunities in China, specifically Hainan, which is basically driving the market today. Um, And of course, there's good news in skincare with more focus on skin health. And I agree with you, there's a lot of focus on cosmeceuticals and, you know, even luxury skincare. What about you, Deanna? What's going on stateside? 
So I'm seeing quite a bit of similarities here in the Americas market. Um, skincare is doing well. Um, I've seen impressive growth numbers from brands like Tula and heard some really interesting, you know, anecdotal growth numbers uh, from different indie businesses that I'm in touch with. The growth and challenges that you're both describing are showing up on the supply side of the business as well, right? Makeup is down for manufacturers and ingredient makers. Um, fragrance, uh, especially packaging components, aren't selling as well. Um, I think home fragrance has been doing quite well and fine fragrance is picking back up, but over the course of the past year uh, didn't do so well. Um, and, and we can see this, like I said, reflected in some of the financials that I've seen reported from supply side businesses. So the packaging company Aptar, for instance, um, had a fair amount of growth, both through acquisition, but also um, in their personal care supply space, especially in terms of demand for soap and sanitizer dispensing solutions for the, that they produce. So um, I, I think we're seeing the same sort of effects that you've both described here in the Americas region and both in terms of finished goods companies as well as suppliers. Despite that, we're still seeing a lot of um, activity in the industry pertaining to m and I think, Casey, there's a lot going on on your side. Maybe you could take us through that? Yeah, so probably, you know, the biggest, most recent announcement that we saw was Estelle Order set to acquire Desiem, who have brands like The Ordinary. Now, what's interesting here is it's a two-part deal. So they already had a minority stake in the company that's been upped to a majority. And within three years, they said they're going to buy out the entire portfolio. And that's going to take Estee Lauder into a space. DCM have got a lot of products that are very, let's call it, it's more mass market, but very, very potent, um, presenting lots of active ingredients. So it's going to edge them into a new space. So that will be an interesting one to watch. And the Huck Group have been on just a very, very aggressive expansion um, road, let's call it. Um, which has just aligned so well with this shift to digital during COVID. Um, consumers preferring to shop online, beauty brands investing more heavily in the e-commerce and social commerce space. Uh, Revlon also recently partnered with MDR Brand Management to globally expand uh, a couple of their brands. So I thought that was quite an interesting deal as well. Have there been many um, much M&A over in APAC or the Americas? Not as much. I think we can start with Shiseido. You know, last year they entered into a joint venture with Yaman, a luxury anti-aging beauty device firm, and they just launched a new brand together called Effectim, targeted specifically at the Chinese market. And I think, you know, like I said before, these are what the players are doing. L'Oreal recently acquired Takami, a Japanese skincare brand, a very niche brand, uh, for the same reason to tap into China and Asia, you know, where the demand for derma beauty and, and luxury skincare is where the potential is. Uh, recently, we saw Shiseido sell off its personal care business. And the reason is because the group wanted to focus on luxury skincare, uh, where the profit margins are much higher. And Shiseido said they would continue to manufacture the products. They are just allowing someone else to step in and raise the brands to a higher level because they have some really good brands there that have a lot of potential like Senka. Yeah, so definitely what you're saying makes sense in terms of where uh, brands are focusing, thinking about market expansion in Asia, thinking about, you know, really reaching the skincare market, which is has done quite well. And I would 
echo, Casey, something you said about seeing e-commerce investments from many brands. Certainly, that's been a very important development over the past year or so. Being able to reach consumers directly and having owned retail space online, that makes very good sense. And again, I'm going to jump over more to the supply and manufacturing side when I look at uh, merger and acquisitions activity here in the Americas market. The full-service formulation manufacturing and packaging company called KDC1, um, they have never stopped acquiring uh, throughout the pandemic. It was in March of last year, they acquired Cosmetic Laboratories, uh, then in the summer, Hericity Chemical. But I would say late 2020, um, and then at the start here of 21 is when I really saw the, what I would say, the rest of the supply and manufacturing side sort of get back in to the acquisition or, or merger activity that that is more customary. Um, it was late uh, 2020 when Traub Capital acquired Mana Products, a contract manufacturer um, that specializes in skincare, they do color cosmetics, they do hair care, um, and they've created a, an interesting partnership recently called the Vertical Beauty Alliance, um, which is, again, back to your point, uh, Amanda, moving into, you know, a more multinational approach and, and into other markets. It's a collaborative partnership, quite interesting. Just to add to that, Diana, we also saw the closure of the mega merger between International Flavors and Fragrances and DuPont's Nutrition and Biosciences. Yes closed in February there. So there's a significant amount of movement going on on the supply side. I absolutely agree. So with all that is happening, do you think that we can say that this is good news? I think it's a good indication. Um, I, you know, if we take a step back, I think everything shows that what industry really did after, you know, when the the crisis first began, everybody was in reactive mode. um, And what the sort of back half of last year gave was time. You know, when I've been doing my interviews with various brand owners, founders, people in ingredients firms, they all said that they've actually just had a bit of time to sort of regroup, rethink, reprioritize. And I think these sorts of mergers, acquisitions, um, rebranding, new strategies are just the result of that time had, um, the sort of pause button to actually think, where do we want to move into? Where do we need to grow into to cater to consumer needs? I think that's something within this that's very important to acknowledge is that the beauty consumer has changed dramatically um, during and because of the pandemic. What they're looking for in a product now is very different to what it was at the beginning of 2020. And of course, consumer needs change all the time, but certainly many of them were hugely accelerated um, because of the pandemic. And I think what we're seeing as well is lots of innovation and new product development come out of that too, to sort of cater to, let's call it, these new needs. Um, So I do think like, you know, I think it's a good sign. Um, I don't think that industry is necessarily out of the woods yet. I think that um, companies are still going to have to really carefully follow the market because, you know, we're not out of the global pandemic yet. So there could still be significant change on the horizon. Definitely pick up on something Casey said that the beauty consumer is looking for something different uh, this year than this time last year. Um, Certainly we're seeing a shift to wellness. Um, I'm seeing quite a lot of product launches that fit into what I would describe as a hygiene or hygiene chic 
uh, trend. Um, and obviously, brands are now working to help consumers address um, what's being described as pandemic fatigue. So one of the obvious and early complaints, I think, with all the hand washing and hand sanitizer use, you know, was dry skin. Um, so we've seen brands like Dove launch a nourishing hand sanitizer that has moisturizing benefits. I think we've spoken before about how the pandemic uh, has re-emphasized the importance of environmental sustainability. So I'm seeing um, in that regard more and more waterless or solid formulations being launched. Um, one that stands out to me comes from an indie brand called Do Mighty. They've created a jelly serum bar that I think is reasonably enchanting and, and consumers will, will be drawn to. Another independent brand uh, that I pay attention to is called Well Within or Planted in Beauty. And they recently launched um, a spray-on facial moisturizer. So moving into that sort of no-touch product application solutions um, and thinking about hygiene in terms of products that we haven't necessarily considered or, you know, quite made perhaps maybe Maybe we weren't careful enough about in the past. In terms of um, product application, uh, there's a brand called Yubi Beauty uh, that creates basically makeup brushes, but they're they're quite um, quite an interesting design. That's a, a brush collection that features antimicrobial bristles, right? So definitely getting at the concern that we have about touching our faces um, during the pandemic. Um, and also thinking about application tools, um, the, the brush and tool maker Anissa International, um, which is based here in the US but has quite a bit of manufacturing in Asia, is making more and more skincare applicator tools for its brand partners. I'm seeing all sorts of, all sorts of interesting tools come from that company right now. So I think a lot of the new product development I'm seeing here um, in the Americas market does have to do with hygiene, um, you know, touchless or, or no touch product and environmental sustainability to be sure. On the product side, the most interesting trends I've seen are firstly increasing interest in men's cosmetics in both skincare and makeup. Recently, Shiseido revamped the Ultimate for men's range and it's now being fronted by Barcelona Football Club. So you can see that they know there's an interest and they are investing into it. We are also seeing more interest in products like BB creams and CC creams for men, uh, which is interesting. Uh, according to one report, this is because men have more time on their hands, basically, and they also have the time to experiment in the comfort of their own homes. I think that's a very interesting explanation to why we are seeing these trends. A new area which is quite interesting is makeup with skincare benefits, but without the pigment, you know, without the color. So what it does is that it smooths out your skin, it gives it a glow, but without the pigment and the color, so your mask won't get stained. I've seen such products from Kenmake, a smaller but very popular Japanese beauty brand. Um, Shiseido has also announced something similar, I think they call it a transparent foundation. And a Singaporean brand called Skin Inc, which uh, launched a serum, which has all these benefits of smoothing our skin, giving a glow, um, but, but, but with niacinamide as an active ingredient. So these products are marketed as skin beautifying products with skincare benefits that you can actually leave on and go to bed with. I think it's a very interesting evolution in this interest in skincare, you know, with, with a desire to look good. And also, interestingly, solving this problem of makeup transfers on the mask that we are seeing as well. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think it, it picks up on so many trends. A lot of trends, right, have picked up from before the pandemic. Um, I was watching the Opte device uh, before the pandemic, but it gets into exactly what you're describing, right? It's almost like invisible makeup or, or makeup that we're less aware of, less less intrusive perhaps in terms of, of changing someone's appearance, but but making them, like you said, you know, smaller pores or smooth out skin tone, um, things that things that are perhaps um, 
more desirable benefits in our current moment. That's so interesting to hear. Skin, certainly skin health is something I've seen just soar here, you know, every beyond the skincare category, you know, traditionally we want skincare products, of course, for for better skin. But yeah, that's now trans, transferring further reaching even into things like scalp care products, leg care, definitely gone beyond the traditional skincare category. What I've seen in, in the EMEA region, which interestingly sort of contrasts what you were saying, Amanda, about men's makeup, is we've seen a continued push towards this concept of genderless beauty. Typology is quite a small brand, but very much a genderless positioned brand, and they're very strongly uh, planning on staying in that space. And then we've got Monroe Skincare, which launched last year. Again, um, very simple uh, beauty for all. So, you know, the concept that you could just potentially share one product between a household, irrespective of gender, irrespective of um, preferences. So there's still um, a push here for it, but it's happening alongside, I would call a much bigger movement towards, yeah, what we've seen it for a while now, genderless fragrances and perfumes. Um, but within all of that, what I've seen from an innovation standpoint that I think is important to point out and possibly been accelerated by COVID is personalized beauty. Now, personalized beauty is nothing new, but we've actually seen products come to market and notably from two of the biggest brands, um, L'Oreal and Beisendorf. So I think when they finally bring something to market, that's when you really know that, um, the movement sort of has made it. You know, we heard Beisendorf, they launched a dedicated uh, direct-to-consumer face care brand um, called Only What's Needed. They're shortening it to OWN. Um, and each consumer goes online, you fill out a sort of scientifically constructed questionnaire, and then your product is blended exactly for your particular needs. And then we finally had the long-awaited L'Oreal Perso device launch at the beginning of the year. They launched it under Yves Saint Laurent lipstick. So that's interesting, an interesting move to have made during during the crisis, you know, given that lipstick and lip care is a category certainly not faring as well because of all the mask wearing. You mentioned the Perso and I think that's interesting because it highlights one of the biggest challenges companies might have right now in regards to innovation. Before the pandemic, there was obviously the pressure to innovate, but now it, I think that pressure is even more intense. Not just the need for speed is there, but the products must be even more fantastical to, to catch your attention just like the Perso. Another product example I'm thinking of is Benefit's uh, new magnetic mascara. You know, such products uh, have a strong hook that make you sit up and take notice. I think that's very important for brands right now because they not only had to cut through the noise, but also that rational part of you that says, you know, things like you don't need makeup products anymore. There's an aspect of it that needs to be fun and engaging and bring something positive to your life. And I think that a lot of the brands have, have fallen back on that given all the hardships experienced by people worldwide last year you know how do we inject a little bit of fun and positivity into consumers lives via beauty innovation beyond just efficacy and um, you know ease of use and I think that's quite nice to see we definitely see it in a lot of the innovations coming out I mean it's what the indie brands do so well because they're so close to their consumers 
and they can respond quickly. You were saying about time to market with innovation. You know, we've heard about this L'Oreal innovation for it's been over a year now, but and even then they've managed to do that through their internal um, innovation group. But the indie brands can move and respond so much quicker to to consumer needs and, and gaps in the market. But I don't I don't think it's going to be easy. You know, the like we've seen a lot of um, a lot of new product development and a lot of innovation, but there are still challenges ahead, as there always have been. But I think it's important to note that they're probably a, a lot more complex. Um, the, the consumer I was following the consumer analyst group of New York conference there just just a couple of weeks back. And the Unilever CEO clearly outlined intentions that they're going to divest a certain number of beauty and personal care brands mm -hmm. um, just because of the current market environment alone. So, you know, there, there are going to be difficult decisions, I think, had to be made at brand level. Suppliers are going to have to become more perhaps flexible. Like I said before, I don't think industry is completely out of the woods. Maybe both of you have seen some more specific challenges or identified some challenges ahead. I like what you're saying about supplier flexibility, Casey, because I think that's definitely something some of the acquisitions or mergers we've discussed are getting at. They're trying to make sure that their businesses are more adaptable, um, You know, whether that means having multiple sources for the same ingredient or if it means offering a wider portfolio of ingredients and services services to beauty makers. Um, but that's, that's, you know, definitely an effort to fill that need and to be flexible to, you know, what the market needs right now, which is, is very much, um, you know, a, a moving target to be sure. Other challenges that stand out, the biggest challenge that I hear about and see about right now is still international shipping, just in terms of even having having the staff to unload when something gets to the dock, um, the waiting line um, here in the States, um, never mind for other countries, is, is really quite, quite challenging um, for suppliers and brands right now. Um, you know, and then beyond that, a challenge I would point to, and I, I imagine you can both say more about this, but um, ongoing COVID precautions and the changes in consumer demand are just, um, you know, still, still very much a challenge because in many ways, we don't know, you know, we don't know what it's like to, to um, you know, go through these precautions for six more months or if maybe it's three more months or whatever it is and what you know what the consumer will be interested in because we have seen that shift to wellness but as you were suggesting earlier casey we've also seen that shift to more experimentation and and play um but sort of what the next uh phase is right for beauty consumers is is yet to be seen yeah Definitely. And then alongside that, certainly here, we've got some very important legislation coming through. We've got the European Green Deal on the cards. So that's going to be significant for, you know, global beauty players, anybody operating in Europe. Um, there's going to be a lot more close, closer look at certain ingredients. We've had an endocrine disruptor fitness check just finish here. If I could just add on about regulation, China just announced that imported ordinary cosmetics, meaning products that don't have claims like UV protection and anti-aging, etc., can be exempted from mandatory animal testing from May 1st. So of course there are conditions, and one of them is that your manufacturing facility needs a GMP certification from a quote-unquote competent authority. Uh, what this means is that it needs to come from a government agency and not an association. 
which is I believe how it's done in the US and EU. So as you can see, there are still some things to work out. Um, and yeah, in amongst all of you know, it's juggling between consumer shifts, uh, the actual on the ground challenges, and then legislation on the horizon. It's quite um, it's a complex environment at the moment, I think, for for many beauty players. Now, this is all very interesting, but we'll need to pick this up on another episode because we do not have any time left, I'm afraid. I think we've touched on some interesting points today. I hope our listeners agree and join us again for another episode of the Editor's Cut podcast soon on cosmetic design. Excellent. This was lovely. Thank you. Thank you.